Okay, good evening. So tonight I'd like to continue exploring some of the themes that we've all been talking about over the last week or so. And in many ways, all of these themes converge on a deceptively simple statement that pretty much sums up everything we're doing here. And that phrase is liberation through non-clinging. Liberation through non-clinging. And it's a phrase that I heard a few times earlier on in my practice, mostly in talks by Joseph Goldstein. But it took me quite a while to understand the significance of what it's pointing to. And in the beginning, it sounded like just another one of those pithy Dharma statements, but it didn't have much resonance in terms of my actual practice. A few years ago, though, as sometimes happens with these Dharma teachings, I heard that same phrase for, I don't know, maybe the 20th time, and it hit home. I started to understand it in a whole new way. So this evening, I'd like to use this phrase, liberation through non-clinging, as an entry into some of the key teachings of the Buddha. Because in many ways, it's a summary of the whole of the Buddha's teachings. And that one short statement, it includes both the goal of the teachings, liberation, and the means to get there through non-clinging. So simple, but genius. Now, liberation is another term for awakening, for freedom, nibbana. And while this is the direction that our practice is heading, Unfortunately, we can't just will ourselves to experience freedom. There's a process that each of us has to go through. And that process is laid out in the core teaching of the Four Noble Truths. So hopefully, as you remember, with the First Noble Truth, the Buddha begins by simply acknowledging there is dukkha. Dukkha is a fact of life. And he says that the task of the first noble truth is to understand dukkha, to understand how and why we experience unsatisfactoriness, stress, distress, suffering. So just as a reminder, I'd like to read you the Buddha's more detailed definition of what he meant by dukkha. And this is based on a translation by Nyanamoli Tara. So suffering as a noble truth is this. Birth is suffering. Aging is suffering. Sickness is suffering. Death is suffering. Sorrow and lamentation, pain, grief and despair are suffering. Association with the loathed is suffering. Dissociation from the loved is suffering. Not to get what one wants is suffering. In short, suffering is the five categories of clinging objects. So there's a huge amount in that one statement. So just to summarize it, the Buddha starts with the physical distress, just from having a body. And then he moves on to include the mental and the psychological dukkha of being in the world, the sorrow and lamentation, pain, grief, despair, that we're all subject to at times. He also includes the relational or 
social dimensions of dukkha, the distress of being separated from the people we love or having to be with people we loathe. But then, just in case all the bases haven't been covered, the Buddha ends that definition of dukkha with a summary statement. In short, suffering is the five categories of clinging objects. In other words, the five clinging aggregates that Bhante spoke about in his talk on impermanence last week. And that Kim also referenced in her talk on the clinging aggregate of perception. So I'm, don't worry, I'm not going to go into all five clinging aggregates again now, but just for context, a reminder of what they are. One, material form, which includes the body, or rupa in Pali. Second, feeling tone, or vedana. Three is perceptions, or sanya. Four, volitional mental formations, or sankhara. And five, consciousness, or vijnana. Now, don't worry if it's not exactly clear what each of these categories is referring to. For now, what I want to focus on is the clinging to them. Because the aggregates in and of themselves, they're not an issue. They're just different aspects of how we experience and function in the world. The problem comes when we cling to them in various ways. So clinging here is a kind of an umbrella term for any kind of holding on, grasping, craving, getting caught up in or identifying with experience. In other words, taking it personally, having it define who I am. And clinging can also refer to any form of resistance to experience, pushing it away, rejecting, avoiding, denying it. So it's really any kind of entanglement, either for or against anything. The opposite of clinging, which is what all of this practice is aiming for, is what I frame as release. So release is about letting go, letting be, non-entanglement, non-identification. And this release happens on deeper and deeper levels, ultimately leading all the way to the peace of Nibbana, awakening. So sometimes in my own practice on retreat, I think of this, these four noble truths as in a way collapsing or condensing into just two basic aspects or movements two basic energies, fundamental experiences of either clinging or release. In some ways it's that simple. In any moment are we clinging or is there release? So the first and second noble truths, they describe the problem of clinging, what causes it. The third and fourth noble truths describe how to attain release. And when we simplify the practice into just those two fundamental movements, we start to notice the impact of them very directly in the body. So as mindfulness gets more refined, it becomes easy to recognize the subtle, or at times not so subtle, tension, tightness, contraction that comes when we are clinging to or resisting something. We can also train in noticing the opposite, 
Again, on the most basic bodily level, what does the absence of clinging feel like? The experience of release usually is known as different sensations of ease, relaxation, openness, balance, and so on. So recognizing the felt sense difference between clinging and release is one way that we can directly explore the experience of anatta or not-self. Now again, Brian gave a whole talk on this theme last Saturday. So I'll just say a little bit more about the context of how the release of clinging can give us an insight into not-self and a momentary taste of the freedom that comes when we're not identified with experience. Now, what was and is totally radical about the Buddha's teaching is that through his own direct experience, he recognized that this sense of self that we usually unconsciously assume to be fixed and solid and permanent, just fundamentally who I am, it's actually a process, a construct that our minds create out of the flux of physical sensations and sense impressions and feeling tones and perceptions and mental formations. All of these get elaborated into this character that we call me. And the Buddha investigated this process very deeply in his own experience. And he understood that because everything is changing, there is no fixed permanent entity or identity at the center who's experiencing it all. Now maybe on an intellectual level we might have some understanding of the truth that sensations and feeling tones and sense contacts and thoughts and emotions, they're all impermanent. But on a felt sense level, somehow beneath all that, there often is just that sense, but yeah, this is me, this is who I am. This is a natural part of being human. We're not trying to deny that. It's common sense that I'm me, I'm not you. We all have different life stories, conditioning, personalities. The subtlety of the Buddha's teaching on not-self is that it's the clinging to it that creates the problem. To the extent that we take the sense of me to be solid and fixed and permanent and real, To that extent, it causes dukkha, suffering, because it confines and limits us to just one view, and a distorted and inaccurate one at that. And in the suttas, the Buddha used a metaphor of a dog tied by a leash to convey just how limiting it is when we cling to the aggregates. So he says, it's just as when a dog is tied by a leash to a post or a stake. If it walks, it walks around that post or stake. If it stands, it stands next to that post or stake. If it sits, it sits next to that post or stake. If it lies down, it lies down right next to that post or stake. In the same way, an uninstructed run-of-the-mill person regards form the body as this is mine, this is myself, this is what I am. They regard feeling tones and perceptions and volitional mental formations and consciousness as this is mine, this is myself, this is what I am. If they walk, 
they walk right around these five clinging aggregates. If they stand, they stand right next to these five clinging aggregates. If they sit, they sit right next to these five clinging aggregates. If they lie down, they lie down right next to these five clinging aggregates. So from that image, we can get a sense of how clinging keeps us tied or bound to just one way of being in the world, prevents us from experiencing freedom. And a dog that's leashed like that has a very limited perspective on reality. So you may remember from Kim's talk the other night when she talked about perception and she named some of the key distortions of perception. One of them is perceiving self where there isn't one. Now, again, for many people, at first, this is pretty deeply counterintuitive. So we're fortunate the Buddha didn't just ask us to believe this. He helped us to see for ourselves how this whole self-constructing project happens so that we can deconstruct it and experience more ease as a result. So in some ways, the Buddha was a master of deconstruction, And he gave us different lenses, different ways of exploring our experience to reveal how our delusions get created. And as an analogy for this, I sometimes think of the metaphor of going to the cinema, going to watch a movie. And this works better if you, some of you probably don't even know, but they used to have big reels of film. Nowadays, it's all digital. But if you remember or you've seen those big old movie projectors with the spools, the reels of film, projecting images onto the screen. And metaphorically, the Buddha is inviting us not so much to get entranced with what's on the screen, but to turn around and look at the projector and see the mechanism of how all this is happening. And a lot of the time, we're playing those movies in our own heads. And strangely, coincidentally, the movies always seem to be starring me. And the movie seems to be called All About Me. And we write the script, and we're the lead actor, and we're the producer, and the publicist, and the creative director of the whole story. And we choose the music for the soundtrack. And often we're secretly hoping for an award for all of that effort. (laughs) Maybe the award for the most outstanding meditator on the long retreat. And even if we don't get that reward... We're just so fascinated and enchanted by all the dramas playing out on the movie screen that we don't recognize that we ourselves are fabricating that whole experience. So you could say in some ways that all the mindfulness methods that are in the Satipatthana Sutta, they're an invitation from the Buddha to turn our attention away from the movie screen and look at the projector understand the mechanism that's creating this whole illusion. And every time we recognize this, even if it's for only a moment, it loosens the clinging and the identification just a little. And it strengthens the experience of ease that comes when we don't take ourselves quite so seriously. And what a relief that is. 
So this is one huge benefit of directly experiencing anatta or not-self. But I think one reason that many people find the idea of anatta so difficult is due to the translation of it as not-self. Because in English, this tends to set up a duality of apparent opposites, self versus not-self. And then if we stay on the concept level, it might sound like the goal of practice is for the self to somehow get rid of itself so that it can stop all that selfing and become a better (laughs) not-self, which obviously is a bit like a dog chasing its tail. It's pretty futile and it just tends to tie us up in intellectual knots. So when Brian spoke of anatta last Saturday, he mentioned that instead of thinking of not-self in terms of a binary can be more useful to think of it as a continuum or a spectrum. And that spectrum moves from one end, a very strongly activated or identified sense of self, and then at the other, a quieter, less activated sense of self. And if we have those two points of reference, then we can practice at any time just noticing where are we along that spectrum and see that a lot of the time we're moving along it. So just to get your own sort of reference points for that, to see if you can identify each end of that spectrum. So if we start with the side of the continuum where the sense of self gets highly activated, the strong identification, you took something very personally, you might just start to bring to mind a time when you really were highly identified with something, where there was some strong clinging or identification, maybe here on this retreat. So just a moment. Can you find an example of being pretty solidly feeling like me? And as you bring that to mind now, you might notice any effect that has on the body, the heart-mind. So when we are experiencing clinging or identification, often it creates tension in the body. Maybe a slight tightening or contracting, stiffening or bracing, or maybe sort of puffing up or inflation. And then often there's a similar energy in the mind of tightening and narrowing and perhaps agitated thoughts. So do you have a sense of that? Does that ring true for anyone? Do you think of that as being at one end of the spectrum? Yeah. So that's the benchmark at that end. Now let's see if we can find the other end of the spectrum and see if you can find or remember a time when the sense of self is much lighter, maybe even momentarily disappeared. Sometimes this can happen when we're meditating. Perhaps one of those times when the practice feels to have more of its own momentum and it just flows into that effortless effort that I mentioned last week. So again, just a moment of silence to see if you can call to mind time when the sense of self is maybe much quieter or looser.
And if you can find an experience like that, again, what effect does it have on the body, the heart and the mind? For most people, that tends to bring a sense of ease or relaxation, maybe openness, spaciousness, calm, quiet, steadiness. And if there are emotions or mind states, they're usually are more skillful ones. Qualities like gratitude or kindness, compassion, interest, clarity, and so on. So again, just wondering if that rings true for anyone. If you can have a sense of that other side of the spectrum and the positive effects that it has. Okay, so what I'm suggesting is just to train in noticing that difference between times when there is more clinging and when there's less and the sense of self is just a little quieter, more in the background. Because when we can really see and feel what it's like to be caught in identification, the dukkha of that, the suffering starts to become more obvious and then we naturally want to let it release. So just an invitation as you go about your day to tune in where, when, and how does the sense of self get stronger? What are the conditions, the circumstances that tend to make it more intense? And then the opposite, what are the conditions and circumstances that help it to be lighter? So now hopefully you have a general sense of how clinging, identification and release might be experienced. I'd like to look a little bit more closely about, well, how does this process happen? This process of self-referencing, self-constructing, a process that in the discourses is known as eye-making and my-making, ahankara, mamankara in Pali. And to see how that process of I-making and my-making almost always brings dukkha with it. So we've already looked briefly at the role of the five clinging aggregates here. But these are not just separate individual components that come together to create a sense of me. They also tend to support and reinforce each other and at times combine to form a kind of a chain reaction that pulls the mind into identification and then very often keeps it stuck there. And this process is sometimes referred to as the chain of cognition. And this, as you'll hear in a moment, this chain of cognition, it plays a crucial role in that constructing of a sense of self, which then needs to be defended and shored up and becomes a further source of suffering. So there's a famous discourse known as the Honeyball Sutta, which the Buddha gave in response to a question about how does conflict happen, and how do we put an end to that conflict, put an end to, quote, resorting to rods and weapons, quarrels, brawls, disputes, recrimination, malice and false speech, so that these evil, unwholesome states cease without remainder. Now, in the context of a retreat like this, as far as I know, no one has ever resorted to rods and weapons. (laughs) But I think there are definitely times when we get caught in unwholesome states, 
irritation, frustration, judgment, aversion of various kinds. So it's worth getting a sense of how does this chain reaction happen. In the Honeyball Sutta, the Buddha described how conflict arises from an initial sense contact or pasa. So at any of the six sense doors, there's a sight or a sound, a smell, a taste, physical sensation, some kind of mental activity. That sense contact automatically stimulates feeling tone or vedana, which as you remember is that bare knowing of pleasant, unpleasant or neutral. At the same time, perception or sanya comes into play. And Kim spoke about this the other night, that capacity of the mind to recognize what we're experiencing based on past experiences that are similar. So again, the example of this bell. At some point in the past, we learned a round metal bowl like this in this context is used to create a ringing sound. So far, all fairly neutral. But from here, when there's no mindfulness, often those perceptions are then taken to, and used to fabricate, to concoct, to construct, to amplify all kinds of stories about the experience. And many of them refer back to me at the center of it all. So now we're in the terrain of the fourth clinging aggregate. This is Sankara, volitional mental formations. And this is a fairly broad category. It includes all the mental processes of the mind, such as attention and evaluation, all the different ways that we take in sense data and then complexify it into stories and constructs and views about our experience, which very often then shape a fixed sense of who we are. And it's this aspect of Sankara that I want to focus on tonight. Because learning to recognize the narratives that we concoct and tell ourselves as simply Sankara, that can be very freeing. Now, maybe that's sounding a little bit abstract. So just to see if we can get a sense of how do perception and volitional formations come together to construct what we usually think of as, well, just reality. So let's try and simplify it for a moment. And let's just take the example of sound. So as you're sitting here listening to me, my lungs, my throat, my mouth, my diaphragm, they're working together, creating pressure waves in the air of this room. And those pressure waves travel across the space. They come into contact with your ears and they vibrate those little hair-like structures in your eardrums. And that allows you to hear sounds coming into the ear door. And your mind then perceives or recognizes those sounds as words. And it strings together the words into sentences and starts to form meaning. But the meanings that you're making from what I'm saying, they're not inherent in the words. Because the you that's receiving them is not a blank slate. You have your own life histories, personalities, conditioning of all kinds. So the words that I'm saying, they'll resonate slightly differently for each of you 
and the meanings that you form from them will be colored by the sankhara, the volitional formations. Now that's pretty hard to see when I'm speaking whole sentences. So I'm going to, in a moment, just say three single words separately and slowly. And as you hear each one, I invite you just to notice, firstly, the perception of hearing the sound, the recognition of what the word is, and then see if you can also notice perhaps the mind almost instantaneously forming sankhara around it emotional or mental reactions, maybe images, memories, and so on from your own history. So the first word, peaceful. The second word, panic. And the third word, Actually, two words, post office. (laughs) So did you notice just the basic perception of each word? And then the feeling tones, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. And then perhaps almost instantly the mind adding reactions, associations, memories. Perhaps then even running off into papancha, proliferation, about the last time you went to the post office and almost had a panic attack because it was just so whatever in there and blah, 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 stories, constructing. Often this is happening so fast that we don't catch it in action. And again, this process is not just one single linear strand, one sense door at a time. There are multiple feedback loops coming in at all the sense doors, flowing into each other, constantly constructing, concocting, fabricating what we think of as reality and usually referring back to some kind of solid identity at the center of it all. So the more we can see that in action, the easier it is to let that clinging and forming go and experience more ease and freedom instead. Now again, it's important to keep in mind that the sankhara in and of themselves aren't problematic. The issue is that as we cling to and identify with them, when mindfulness is weak, there's a tendency to let them spin out into papancha, those incessantly looping and proliferating thoughts, and those in particular almost always center around a strong sense of me. And the more we keep telling ourselves these stories, the more solid they become. So again, just for a moment in your own life, see if you can think of some examples of how you tend to define yourself to others or to yourself. Maybe there are some key stories or narratives that you tend to identify with. See them as real and true, just who you are in some significant way. Just a moment to see. Are there certain ways or stories that you use to define yourself in some way?
Now, sometimes this is harder to do in the context of a silent retreat because often our core beliefs or identities only become clear when they're challenged in some way, when someone does or says something that contradicts our self-image, our sense of who we are. And we can get pretty reactive when that happens. And I'll give you an example of that from my own life soon. But first, just a little more about how we might to start how we might start to catch this self-constructing process in action. When mindfulness is more steady and refined, it can be very illuminating just to pay close attention to our inner dialogue and listen out for any statements that begin with the phrase I am. I am such and such. Now, some phrases might be quite benign. I'm going to do my laundry. No problem. But others come with quite a charge, and it's these that we want to look out for. Statements like, I'm a hopeless meditator, or I'm a star meditator, I'm a failure, I'm a success, I'm doing it wrong, I'm doing it right. And even just hearing those phrases now, Maybe you have a sense of how seductive they can be, but also how distorting, because they tend to fix and solidify just one perspective and create a me who always has been, always will be, hopeless, a star, a failure, a success, and so on. So if you do happen to recognize some of these statements, one antidote is to play with that inner language and see if you can find something that's actually more accurate, less solidifying. And taking out the first person pronoun is often a good way to start. So for example, instead of saying, I'm a hopeless meditator, if we look more carefully, a more truthful statement might be, there's awareness of feeling pretty discouraged right now. Do you hear the difference? I'm a hopeless meditator. Oh, awareness of feeling discouraged right now. Or instead of saying, I'm a star meditator, it could be more accurate to say, hmm, the practice feels to be going quite well right now. And there's just a trace of identification with it. So one advantage of being on retreat for all these weeks and months is that we get to listen to just our own minds without much outside interference. And then we can really hear the kinds of things that we're telling ourselves over and over. And it can be fascinating, again, at times when mindfulness is strong. We just settle back and there's a flow, thoughts coming and going, emotions coming and going, mind states coming and going, and... For long periods of time, maybe we just see them arising and passing away. And then one of these thoughts comes along and, yep, that's me, that's mine, that's who I am. And we've taken the bait, we're hooked, we're caught in believing whatever distorted version of reality that particular sankhara is telling us. So right there, we can train in bringing wisdom to recognize just thought. 
thought being known. It's not me, it's not mine, it's not who I am, and it's not my fault. It's arising due to conditions, passing due to conditions. So wisdom sees clearly the emptiness of that thought pattern. At the same time, because these sankharas have hooked us, there's usually also some kind of painful emotion that comes with it. So we might also need to bring in some compassion just to acknowledge, yes, it's empty and it has an impact on the heart. So bringing in a moment or two of compassion can help to soften the identification Okay, so as I mentioned, just an example from my own life, just to hopefully get an uh, even clearer sense of what I'm pointing to here. And this comes from um, an unfortunate experience I had on my first three-month retreat here at IMS of what can happen when we get caught in identification with a particular self-view. And a few of you may have heard this story before, but I invite you just as you hear it now to see if you can recognize where and how I was getting caught in Sankara, how I was getting attached to different identity views. So it's a pretty embarrassing story, but I'll share it as an example of hopefully what not to do. So on this first retreat, I had a meditator job and I was working with a team of people And a couple of months into the retreat, one of those people had to leave. So a new person came into our team. And a staff person gave her a training, showed her what to do. But for some reason, I decided I should be helpful and point out where different equipment was kept. And, you know, I didn't break silence by speaking, but I kind of gestured and, you know, just trying to be helpful. And I was pretty happy that... I had supported her in that way. But that afternoon, there was a note on the board for me. And it was from the person that I tried to help. And it said something like, Sorry for making you so angry this morning. (laughs) (laughs) And my mind wasn't, mindfulness wasn't very strong at that point. So I didn't just note seeing, 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 (laughs) unpleasant Vedana in the body, unpleasant Vedana in the mind, painful emotions arising, confusion, anxiety, embarrassment, sense of self being activated, wanting to be a good person, not wanting to be an angry person, on and on and on. I didn't see any of that. So I went back to my room and I spent time writing a note just trying to explain I hadn't been angry. I was just trying to be helpful. I was sorry she felt that way, blah, blah, blah. And eventually I finished the note and I went back to the notice board to post it. And there was a new sign with a red arrow pointing to it and it said, do not post notes to other yogis. (laughs) And again, I didn't just note seeing, 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 unpleasant, confusion, anxiety. I thought the new sign was about me, and I was wrong and a bad meditator, and now the staff hated me as well as the yogis. (laughs) But then I was in a dilemma because I thought, well, if I don't reply to her, she'll just assume I was angry, and what am I going to do? I couldn't post a note on the board. But later that day, I saw this person walking down the corridor to her room. And it wasn't that far from mine, just a couple of doors down. 
So I thought, well, I just leave the note under her door because then I'm not putting it on the board. But, you know, to sort of minimize the sin, I'll make it really short. And I won't sign it because she'll know who it's from. So I just wrote a note and I said, don't worry, I'm not angry with you. And I put it under her door. And the next day she seemed more relaxed in the work session. So I was happy I'd gone to all that trouble to help put her mind at ease. But a few days later, I was following her down the corridor, and she went into a completely different room. (laughs) And then I realized I'd made a mistake about which room she was in. (laughs) So this other random person got an, an anonymous note out of nowhere saying, don't worry, I'm not angry with you. And I still don't know who got the notes. Maybe it was one of you, you know. I, I never know when I tell this story. If it was, I'm really sorry. So did you recognize the sankharas, all the different formations, the identification, the taking it personally, the acting out, the perpetuating, the proliferating? That's, in the bigger picture of things, a relatively trivial example. But here on retreat, we get to see, to train how this is all happening so that when we get back in our ordinary lives, hopefully it's easier to see those formations, easier to help them release before we get ourselves into trouble. I also want to acknowledge, you know, that story was a relatively coarse example of getting identified with self-view. But for many of you at this stage in the retreat now, many of you are in more refined mental terrain. And so if you remember back to my talk on right effort last week, I talked about how as this practice develops, the hindrances, the gross ones fall away, and the ones that are left are much more subtle and in some ways harder to see because of that. So what we're doing at this stage in the practice is learning to recognize even the slightest trace of taking ownership of our meditation practice, even the slightest trace of identifying with it, becoming someone who's doing the practice. And you may remember I made that distinction between what I called will-driven effort and dharma-driven effort. So as the practice develops, more and more we're just settling back, restraining the mind from proliferating into any form of I-making and my-making, staying close to the simplicity of just sense-based experience. And so at least in moments, we can begin to taste that liberation through non-clinging. There's so much more that we could say about all of this, but I'd just like to finish with a quote from the book The Island. And this is a compilation of sutta quotes about freedom with some commentary by Ajahn Amaro and Ajahn Pasano. And they've written a beautiful description of this movement from clinging to release that happens as we learn to let go of identification with any of the aggregates. So they say, with mindfulness and wisdom, the tendency to go out into perceptions, thoughts, and emotions is restrained. 
And one just allows seeing to be seeing, hearing to be hearing, and so on. So the whole papancha drama doesn't get launched in the first place. The heart then rests at ease, open and clear. All perceptions conventionally labeled as myself or the world are seen as transparent, if convenient, fictions. When there's insufficient mindfulness, though, insufficient mindfulness and wisdom, the mind goes out and attaches to its perceptions and moods, the result of which is the experience of me being pressured by life. Both an apparently solid self and a solid world have been unconsciously created, and the friction between the two is the dukkha, that we find ourselves running from so regularly and ineffectively. Trying to find a me without a world that burdens it is like trying to run away from our own shadow. No matter how hard we run, the effort is bound to fail as the one form generates the other. The aim of all these teachings is to show us that the dualities of subject and object me and the world, do not have to be brought into being at all. And when the heart is restrained from going out and awakens to its fundamental nature, a bright and joyful peace is what remains. This is the peace of Nibbana. So thank you for your attention. Let's just take a few moments of silence and let all the words dissolve. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.